In his gospel account, Luke retells the stories and teachings of Jesus. We see a picture of the Holy Spirit at work, fulfilling the Father's redemption plan through the life and ministry of his Son. He reminds us that the gospel is a matter of the heart, the inner person, not mere external religion. The gospel is a call to reevaluate everything in the world according to God's perspective, not our own. To value mercy over justice, humility over prestige, to value favor with God over favor with people. It's a message of peace, an offering of forgiveness, and an invitation to enter the kingdom of God. The Gospel of Luke. Okay, I hope you have your Bibles already open at Luke. And uh, we're going to start in a minute uh, at uh, verse 39 of Luke chapter 23. So that's where you should have your Bible open to. But I think it's always important to do a little bit of a review. We always have visitors and new people, new people online. So I'm going to just so go back about three sermons and uh, review that part of it just fairly quickly. And so uh, we'll start with, you'll remember this sermon if you were here, at the Passover meal that Jesus held in the upper room. And in that meal were his 12 disciples, and Judas, who we know, of course, was the one who betrayed Jesus, was at a point of privilege at that besides Jesus during that time, and it was during that Passover meal that Judas left to go and betray Jesus' next location where he would be arrested. Well, then from there, we saw that Jesus, after the Passover meal was over, it was later at night, and so the Passover meal is over, and Jesus then and his disciples go to a place called Gethsemane, the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, it's a garden, and a garden's the kind of place that you go to sort of uh, see flowers and to relax and that type of thing, and it's very late at night, and they've had a long day. But Jesus, when he went there, the disciples noticed that he was under enormous stress, that something was incredibly wrong. And what was wrong is that he knew what was coming next. Now, Jesus wasn't afraid, particularly, of being crucified. He wasn't looking forward to it, but that isn't why he was under the stress. He was under huge amounts of stress because on the cross, he was going to take on the sins of everyone in the world so that we could all be forgiven. And to, before he did that, he had a prayer to the Father. He took three of his disciples, and he had them be praying for him. That's why we know what happened. And he went forward a little farther and got down, threw himself down with tears and weeping and even sweating like drops of blood uh, coming out of him. And he prayed, and he prayed to the Father. He trusted his Father his father. And he prayed and he said, Father, if you could take this cup from me, the cup, that was the suffering he was about to go through. But then he said, the greatest prayer of all, not my will, but your will be done. And then after he finished the prayer, he then uh, was arrested. A whole group of soldiers came, some soldiers with a centurion leading them. That'd be a couple of hundred uh, for Roman soldiers, a couple of hundred of what we'll call the policemen uh, of the temple. And so you have hundreds of these people coming just to arrest Jesus. And they arrested him. They tied him up. They took him away. They beat him. And, uh, and then they took him to a trial. Uh, it was a, a, a terrible event because the Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin is the Jewish high council 
they're the most important uh, judges and, uh, in Judaism, and they held a trial at night, which was against their own, their own law. And they found Jesus guilty, and they condemned him to death, but they couldn't kill him because they were under Roman rules, so they had to take him to the Romans. So another trial happened after that before Pilate, and here's the problem with this. When you condemn somebody to death, the Jewish law said you have to wait for 24 hours before the next step. In only a handful of hours, just as daylight broke, they, were, they had Jesus before uh, Pilate, big crowds of people. They had whipped the people up and, and to say all kinds of things about Jesus that were not true. And uh, Pilate came to the conclusion that Jesus was not guilty. And this infuriated everybody, the Sanhedrin especially, and they were yelling at Pilate, and they said, this Galilean, and as soon as he heard Jesus was from Galilee, he thought, well, I know how to get rid of Jesus. I don't want him on my hands. Uh, he said, uh, no, he needs to go see Herod because Herod was in charge. Uh, King Herod was in charge of Galilee. So Jesus went to uh, see King Herod. He was taken again. So we've already, Pilate said he wasn't guilty. He's now going to Herod. Now, the only way I can describe Herod historically is to just say he was a buffoon. That's the only way I can think of it. He, all he wanted out of Jesus was Jesus to do a miracle. He wanted to walk in water or heal somebody. That's all he cared about. He treated him like he was some kind of a clown. That, and Jesus never said a word to him. He just listened. All the way through this, you can tell that Jesus is in charge. That no matter how badly they beat him, no matter what happens, he's just, he, he's, he's super naturally calm about all of this kind of stuff. And so Herod determines he's not guilty, brings him back to Pilate. So Pilate says he's not guilty. Herod says he's not guilty. And then there's a, this thing they do, a Passover, where the people can ask for a criminal that's guilty to be released at Passover. So Pilate thought he had a way out of all this. And so he says, okay, here's Barabbas, a murderer. Do you want me to turn this murderer free? Or this other man over here has never done anything wrong and, and has healed people and just done all good stuff. And they started yelling, egged on the people. You know, Barabbas, 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 we want Barabbas. And they freed the murderer Barabbas, and Jesus replaced him. Talk about irony. They repl Jesus replaced him. And then they yelled, crucify him, crucify him. And finally, Pilate was in a corner, and so he had Jesus further beaten. And then Jesus, it was Passover time. There were so many people around. He was going to the cross. He was carrying his own cross. There were huge crowds along the way. At one point, he stumbled and fell, and he couldn't pick up the cross. His human body was so weak. And so uh, Simeon came along, and he took up the cross and followed Jesus. And there were two other men who are also going to the hill called Golgotha, means the skull, or Calvary, we like to call it. And so he was going there. Those two were going to be crucified, and uh, Jesus uh, was going to be uh, crucified. So when he arrives there, the Sanhedrin, or the the, the, the soldiers take over, and the centurion who's in charge of all this takes over, and they nail Jesus to the cross. They put these big spikes through this part of his hand. Those spikes going through would hit every nerve in your body. It would be like you were on fire. And then they take his feet, and they cross them over, and they nail them onto it. He's completely naked, uh, and uh, they put the cross into the ground, 
and they uh, crucify him. But there's two men beside him, and these two men have been uh, calling him names. Now, that's why I wanted you to be at verse 39. So here we go. Luke, Luke 23, 39. One of the criminals who hurled uh, insults at him, they hung beside him. Uh, they, they actually blasphemed. That's the Greek word says they were blaspheming him. So one of the criminals who hung there blasphemed Jesus. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal... He, all, he watched what has happened, said, don't you fear God? Since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. They were guilty as charged. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said directly to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, Truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, the statement of guilt and need for salvation is a very clear picture of God's amazing grace. Normally, it took several days of incredible suffering to die on the cross. But Jesus said to the criminal who deserved his punishment that today... He said, actually just in a few hours, his suffering would end and he and Jesus would be together in paradise. In a word, Jesus forgave this man completely, this guilty man, only because he asked Jesus. So they both go to paradise. So the question is, where's paradise? Well, Paul told us in his writings, the Apostle Paul, that to be absent from the body is to be present uh, with the Lord. That's where you go when you die. And the word paradise is a word that means a garden. Uh, think of the Garden of Eden in Genesis, a beautiful, perfect place. Uh, and the garden also described in the Revelation in the last book of the Bible. The move from the cross to where Jesus is will be beyond imagination for this forgiven sinner. Uh, Billy Graham wrote a book entitled, Where I Am. I often quote from uh, the book at memorial services or funerals to illustrate what happens after someone dies. Billy was referring to John chapter 14, the words of Jesus. Actually, they are the most heard and known words at funerals uh, across the land. I've even seen, been watching maybe a detective program and somebody is at a funeral and they're burying the person and they, you'll hear these verses quoted. So they're very familiar and many of you know them by heart. So the words of Jesus in John chapter 14 read this way. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. Some older translations say, in my father's house there are many mansions. The problem with that is that it gives us this view of a, a neighborhood with a bunch of houses. That's not the idea at all. It says, my father's house, uh, paradise, heaven, has many rooms. It's got lots of room for as many people that want to come. And if that were not so, 
would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? He wasn't going to build a house. He was going to offer his blood sacrifice to the Father so that we can go there and be saved. And if I go and prepare a place for you, Jesus said, then I'll come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. Now, Billy said people often asked him about heaven, and he would point out that we know enough from the scriptures to know there is a heaven, and we know just enough about it to deeply desire to be there, but if we knew all of what heaven was like, it would become almost impossible to live productively on this lesser earth. In the Apostle Paul's writing in the Corinthian letters, he talks about being supernaturally taken up to the third heaven. And uh, while he's there, he got to see what was in store for him in, when, he, when he went there. And then he returned. And he writes about it. And when he writes about it, he is so taken up with it that he makes it clear in his writing that it's so amazing that, uh, that he, no longer did he really want to be on earth. And so we read this in his writing, and I've quoted it many times. He says, because of all of this, he says, uh, to live on this earth is Christ. In other words, the reason I live now and that I want to be here is uh, so that I can tell people about Jesus. But dying, he wrote, I remember the first time I ever read this, it just stopped me. But dying is better yet. And then he goes on to say, you know, well, you know, I'd like to be in heaven. That's where I really want to be. But for your sake, I'm going to stay. And, and then he tells us that heaven is so amazing that no eye is seen, no ear is heard, uh, no, nobody's imagination, no matter how high their IQ is, ever imagined anything as wonderful as it is to be in eternity. So... Billy Graham loved to say that heaven is where Jesus is, and Billy will soon be where Jesus is. Where I am, you will be also. But now, let's return to Jesus on the cross. The time of day was just before noon. Jesus has been about three hours on the cross, and the sun had been shining, but that's about to change supernaturally. So look in your Bibles, Luke 23, verse 44. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. For the sun stopped shining. This was a supernatural event caused by God. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus called out with a loud voice, just like he did in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. Now, with the sun at its zenith, darkness came for three hours. This was not an eclipse. There was no way for an eclipse during this time of year. This was a sign from God our Father. The whole planet was plunged into darkness. This was a sign of God's displeasure, a sign of judgment because of the unfair trials and the crucifixion of Jesus, 
who, if you'll remember John the Baptist, when he, uh, Jesus came to be baptized by him, John the Baptist looked at, Jesus, looked at Jesus and said, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. They sacrificed a lamb on the Day of Atonement every year for the, to forgive the sins of the people. He's saying that Jesus is the Lamb, the sacrificial Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Darkness and judgment go together throughout Scripture. This would have been understood by all who witnessed this terrible tragedy. Once a year, during the Day of Atonement in, in Judaism, the high priest would enter through the curtain that hid the Holy of Holies in the temple from everyone's eyes, and he would sprinkle the sacrificial blood of a lamb on the altar, cleansing the nation of its sins. So here, we just read it, the curtain is torn in two supernaturally from the top to the bottom, and many would have seen it as the priests at this particular time are getting ready for the ceremony. Uh, this is very important because Jesus cries out first with these words. So in the, if you look at the sayings of Jesus on the cross, he cries out with these words, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means... My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, this is the darkest, most terrible time in all of human history. It was at this point in time on the cross where Jesus is taking on the sins of the world. This is the point of the crucifixion where the sins of the world were judged and the judgment was placed on Jesus rather than on me or you. Uh, during the last two sermons, I pointed to the scripture in 2 Corinthians, which Jesus fulfills by a statement on the cross. Some of you would have, the memor have it memorized by now. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, one of the great gospel verses in the Bible. God made him, that's Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of of God. In other words, the one who is absolutely righteous, Jesus, became unrighteous so that those of us who are absolutely unrighteous can become righteous in God's sight. That's a picture of the gospel, the great exchange. In John's gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we are told that Jesus also yelled, loud voice again, it is finished. But he said only one word. It is finished is the English translation of the underlying word, which is pronounced tetelestai. So very loud. Everybody would have heard it. There's lots of people there. Jesus yells out, tetelestai, with a big shout. And then, look at verse 46. Again, with a loud voice, Father, loud voice, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Now, here's what the people on the ground are seeing. This is, Jesus is acting like this is a victory. You know, like he's on the winning team. There's no, just victory. Tetelestai, it's finished. The God's plan that's been going on all along has come to an end here. And now salvation is offered to every single person on earth that will receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. Jesus' death, followed by his resurrection, made the temple 
superfluous or, or, or unnecessary. There's no longer a reason for the annual sacrifice of atonement. But now atonement has been earned by Jesus for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. All religion is now useless, and instead we're offered a place in God's family. That's why Paul and the other apostles use family language to describe the church. You realize, I know you do, that you are the church. We are the church. Christians, that's the church. Now, there's some Bible names for church. When you read the Bible, one of the names for us as a church is we're the bride of Christ. It pictures a perfect marriage where the husband so loves his wife that he gives up all of his hopes and dreams for the sake of her so she can become everything that God designed her to be. And we are the bride of Christ, and Jesus is praying for us still, and the Father is doing all he can to fulfill the purpose he has given us life for so we can become everything that he wants us to become. Another word or phrase in the Bible for the church, the church is called the body of Christ, the body of Christ. Now, we are all adopted children when we're saved. We're adopted into the family of God. We all have different gifts that are necessary in the jigsaw puzzle of our gathering together and worshiping together and praying for one another and loving each other as Jesus loved us. Loving relationship eclipses religious rules and duties forever. We are the church, the family of God, and everyone who calls in the name of the Lord is welcome to become part of the family. Every Christian is needed and necessary for God's ultimate plan to be complete. That's why we must never give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing. The writer of the book of Hebrews wrote that. Now, let's back up a bit and put all the reports of what has happened so far together. So Jesus was naked and beaten beyond recognition and nailed to the cross. The soldiers and even religious leaders mocked him mercilessly and continually. There was a sign above his head that read, this is the king of the Jews. Pilate put the sign there. Uh, some Jews went to him and says, take that down. It should say Jesus said he was the king of the Jews, not that he was the king of the Jews. And Pilate said, what I have written, I've written. He didn't like, he had no use for the Jews and, and see, that's what I'm putting on the cross. The two thieves that we looked at, the criminals, mocked him and even blasphemed his name. Uh, but one came to his senses and was saved. And then darkness covered the whole earth for three hours. Now, this is really important. And then Jesus gave up his life. There's a lot of commentary written that's kind of sentimental commentary. I've even read in commentaries where medical doctors will explain what actually was happening in the body and how he died and all that. They missed the point altogether. They missed the point altogether. Jesus gave up his life. In John chapter 10, verse 17, these are the words of Jesus himself. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. 
this command I receive from my Father. Jesus died on schedule exactly when he was supposed to. He gave up his life. This is a plan of God made from all eternity so that all of us could become Christians and enjoy our Christian life now and forever. Now, when Jesus gave up his life, there was an earthquake. Luke doesn't describe it in his gospel, but Matthew does. And it reads this way in Matthew chapter 27. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. And when the centurion, now keep in mind, the centurion was a hardened soldier who had crucified so many people, but he and the other soldiers are there, and they're seeing, they're watching how Jesus is comporting. They've never seen anybody in the cross like he is. He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They could hear because they were guarding the cross itself, and they were close. They could hear the conversation between the two thieves and the one thief who was promised Uh, to go to heaven. And so uh, the earth shook, the rocks split, the tombs broke open. And when the centurion and those with him, that's important, the other soldiers with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified. And they exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. So back to Luke's gospel. It's important to see that it was not just the centurion, as important a person as he was, but many of the soldiers also who confessed Jesus must have been the Son of God. So look at verse 47 in Luke's gospel there, as you've got to have it open. The centurion, and now we know there are others too, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, surely this was a righteous man. Now, Pilate... Uh, following Herod and others, declared Jesus not guilty as charged. Last week, I mentioned the irony surrounding the gospel account of Jesus' death. The resurrection and the details were well known among the people of that day. In In the same way, most of us don't trust much of what the government does or says, The people of Jesus' day knew the trial and crucifixion were fixed, illegal, and the conclusions were false. Rather than turn many away from Jesus as the Jewish high council, the Sanhedrin, had planned, the opposite happened. I mean, read Luke's account of what happened after the resurrection and the ascension in the book of Acts. Uh, In your Bible, Luke and Acts is written by the same writer. It goes together. There is no historical record anywhere that suggests Jesus was deserving of the crucifixion or that the trial was anything but unfair and an abomination of justice. History seems to repeat itself over and over again, but the death and resurrection of Jesus needs no repetition. God's purpose of salvation for anyone in the world who calls on his name was accomplished. Jesus' death was, no, Jesus' death is a victory. Now look at verse 48. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, 
They beat their breasts and went away. Now, I don't like to do a lot about original language, but this is just important. All the people should be translated with one word, and then you'll see a big difference it makes. So it would read this way. When the multitudes, that's the word, the multitudes who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. Uh, so the city was filled with tens of thousands of Passover time. The crucifixion site was very crowded, and all that took place would immediately be talked about far and wide. Actually, this reminds me of 9-11. 9-11, what's he going to say now? I remember coming to the church that morning when I was told a plane had crashed into one of the Twin Towers in New York City. I imagined a small plane off course of maybe a student pilot making a fatal error. But within the hour, we were all shaken, as were those who watched the six-hour spectacle of Jesus' death. Within an hour of 9-11, the whole world knew what had happened. Within an hour of the crucifixion, everyone in Jerusalem knew what had happened. And within weeks, the message of the cross and resurrection of Jesus had reached far and wide. And today it is possible, it is possible to meet someone who knows about 9-11 but doesn't really ever think about it. But the crucifixion is still an issue around the world, an issue of belief or unbelief, but it's an issue. Even our calendar reminds us of what happened to Jesus. Uh, when I was uh, first saved, I was a stockbroker and I traded stocks and bonds around the world and I became fascinated that even though places like China did not use our calendar, they had to use it to trade the world markets. So everyone in the world knows about B.C. and A.D. B.C., before Christ, and then A.D. It's a Latin phrase. It means in the year of our Lord. And the difference is Jesus. Or, if you like, in modern scholarship, I was doing a debate in a college uh, and uh, uh, somebody brought up, uh, I, meant, I meant, mentioned B.C. and A.D., and somebody said, oh, we don't go by that anymore. It's now B.C.E. and C.E. And I said, B.C.E. and C.E., before the common era or before Christ existed or something like that, and they kind of looked at me, and C.E., Christ explained. And they looked at me, and I said, so what's the difference between the common era? Like, what separated B, C, E, and C, E, and nobody wanted to say it. And I said, Jesus, he changed the time, the history of the world at that point. It's incredible. My birth date is June 29, 19-something. <laughs> A.D., or if you like, C, E, because Jesus died for my sins and rose from the dead. Now, during Pentecost, 50 days after Jesus rose from the dead, the apostle Peter, who had denied Jesus, has now been restored, and he's preaching a sermon to a large, large group of thousands. And here's part of the sermon, Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. Everybody knew what Jesus was doing in the three years before this. 
This man, Jesus, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan. In other words, this wasn't a mistake. This was God's plan right from the beginning. So this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. 5,000 were saved because of that first sermon of the church. And since then, countless millions have been saved. Christianity is growing exponentially around the world. It may not seem so here in America, but even in Muslim countries, many are turning to Jesus for salvation. 2,000 plus years after Jesus was crucified, gave up his life and rose again from the dead. Well, now look at verse 49. But all those who knew him, verse 49, but all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. It's really worse if you're reading your Bible by yourself to stop and just think of what they had just seen. The apostle John, by the way, was the only apostle at the cross. All the others had run away. But Jesus' mother was also at the cross. Women were prominent in Jesus' ministry, and that remained the case as the church expanded throughout the land. These men and women would have been heartbroken. You couldn't exaggerate their grief, but that was about to change dramatically. So now we have a surprise that no one would have thought possible. The book of Isaiah was written about 700 years before Isaiah the prophet. He lived 700 years before uh, what we just read about. And in Isaiah chapter 53... 52, 53, 54, other parts of it, there's a perfect picture of the Messiah that they were waiting for to come that is exactly what happened when Jesus was here. 700 years before. In the detail, it's so detailed, it's, you, you have to read it. It's unbelievable. But here's just a little piece of it. Isaiah 53, 9 reads, He, that is, the, in Isaiah, 700 years before, he's talking about the Messiah. And we know Jesus is the Messiah. So he was assigned to a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. And there's lots more, but that's enough. Now look at verse 50 in your Bibles. Now there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a member of the Sanhedrin, a good and, it says upright in my Bible version, righteous. You should stroke it out and put in the word righteous. That's a better translation. So there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to the Sanhedrin's decision and action. He probably wasn't there. He was probably away. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea, and he himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. In fact, The other Gospels let us know Joseph was a secret disciple of Jesus. And if the Sanhedrin, the head of the the Jews, knew Joseph was a follower of Jesus, he would have been expelled from Jewish society completely. But now the secret was out and he didn't care. And now look at verse 52, one sentence here. 
going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. Now, he was at the cross and would have received permission from the centurion. He would have had to have permission from the centurion to enter Pilate's palace. And it's clear he went right in and asked Pilate for Jesus' body, and it certainly doesn't surprise anyone that Pilate gave permission. We meet Joseph's partner in the other Gospels, in the Sanhedrin also, who was also a follower of Jesus. You know the story in John chapter 3, Nicodemus meets Jesus at night. John chapter 3, everybody knows John 3.16. He asks Jesus what you have to do to be saved. Jesus tells him you have to be born again. It's a tremendous chapter of the Bible. And so he was. And so Joseph purchased some fine linen cloth, and Nicodemus purchased 100 pounds of spices to keep the body from decomposing as fast. They also would have needed the help of other men in preparing the body. Could it have been the centurion and one or two other or more of the soldiers? I think it's possible. The body did not need to be anointed. You had to anoint the body. It didn't need to be anointed. As we read of an incident in John's Gospel where Mary, Lazarus' sister, you remember uh, chapter 11 of John's Gospel, Lazarus was raised from the dead by Jesus, and Mary and Martha were his sisters, and so now they're having a meal. Judas and the other disciples are there, and so uh, Mary anointed Jesus with an expensive perfume, and when Judas objected, it's written, Jesus said in John chapter 12, verse 7, leave her alone. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. She had already anointed him. Now look at verse 53. Verse 53. Then he, uh, Joseph of Arimathea, that's who the he is, but he couldn't have been alone. Uh, Then he took it down, the body, a dead body. You've heard of dead. Well, a dead body is very difficult to handle. Some of you are in uh, ambulances, all that kind of stuff. You know what it's like. And uh, so he would have needed help getting the body down. He would have needed a lot of help getting the spikes out. And uh, there's no doubt in my mind that that was some of the, of the centurion and some of his men. So he took the body down. He wrapped it in linen cloth and placed it in a tomb cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid, just like Isaiah 53 said. Now, some of you, many actually, are going to be going to Israel next year on our Israel trip. Others of you have already been to Israel. And uh, uh, it's a, an incredible experience to go there and see all of this stuff. There's a tomb in Israel called Gordon's Tomb or uh, the Garden Tomb. And it fits the description in the Gospels perfectly. Now, some say that it is not the actual tomb, but it certainly is the same as the tomb Jesus was laid in. I had an experience inside that uh, tomb many years ago when I was in Israel. I was going to Gordon's tomb every morning for a number of mornings in a row, having my quiet time there. And there's a door now that at nighttime, so you, people can't come in only in the daytime that, uh, in the tomb. And while I was there one morning, the door was open. And so I walked into the tomb and I looked around. They have some things so you can't touch much of anything. You can just look. And uh, so I looked around and I prayed a little bit. And I found myself feeling very emotional that whether that's the right tomb or not is irrelevant. Uh, But uh, Jesus was laid in a tomb just like this 
uh, dying for my sins. And then I turned around, and I think you can read it on the door, but when I turned around, the first thing I saw is, he is not here, for he is risen. And I just couldn't even help myself. I just broke out in weeping. He did that for me. Now, uh, when you go to Israel, here's what you'll see. This is the Gordon's tomb, and you'll be with a group, so you'll have to all line up and go in one at a time. And then when you turn around, you'll see this great big huge stone, uh, and the stone was to be put over the tomb normally. They had stones like that. No one person could handle that, and you could seal off a tomb so that nobody uh, would ever open it, and you'll see why I point that out. So you'll see that when you uh, go to Israel. So back to verse 54. Verse 54. It was preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. The Sabbath starts Friday at 6 p.m. That's the Sabbath. We call it Saturday. But it's, uh, uh, it's Friday at 6 p.m., so the, the, they have to hurry because this was a special Sabbath of Passover week, and things are so arranged that no one must do any work of any kind on the Sabbath on the Saturday. So look at verse 55. The women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. Verse 56. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. So the women would have entered the tomb and witnessed the body of Jesus being laid there, and then they purchased the appropriate spices and perfumes. They noted the location of the tomb, and they prepared to return after the Sabbath. But there's one last thing that we need to know about for what we're doing today, this morning. In Matthew's gospel, we have in Matthew 27 these words. Listen to this. The next day, the one after preparation day, so that's the Sabbath day, the Saturday, the chief priests, that's the Sanhedrin, and the Pharisees went to Pilate, these religious hypocrites. <laughs> I, just, I can hardly say it. Uh, and, uh, sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days I'll rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. They were the deceivers, not Jesus. So take a guard, Pilate answered. Go make the tomb as secure as you know how. Now, that's why I showed you the big stone, because that tomb would have been made secure. It would have been sealed that nobody could get into that tomb. And these soldiers would have protected the tomb with their lies. In other words, if somebody stole the body out of that tomb, they would all be executed. So they were pretty serious, and they knew what they were doing. So here we are. Friday has passed. On Saturday, the Sabbath, be, they'd strictly keep the Sabbath, no work being done, nobody doing anything. But Sunday was coming. Jesus' death saved a criminal on a cross. A centurion and possibly some other soldiers who crucified and even mocked Jesus. And his death also revealed the hidden faith of two Jewish religious leaders, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. 
Jesus' death was the beginning of God's plan to supply salvation to the world. All that is left is our response. The darkness of judgment is about to reveal the blazing light of eternal hope. The disciples of Jesus believed he was the Messiah, but now they were weighed down by doubt. Doubt that was only hours away from becoming the beginning of the church that changed hopelessness into a faith that has transformed the world forever. When Jesus died, society wrote finished and tried to carry on without him. But God wrote to be continued. Let's pray. Father, I just want to come to you in prayer this morning. And, and Father, I know that in every group of people like this, there's some who don't know you yet, have never given their life to you. Or they're like Joseph of Arimathea. They've sort of secretly did it, and they really don't want anybody to know. And I just pray, Father, that if anyone is here who doesn't know Jesus completely and is sure of their salvation, if someone's online of the many who watch there, uh, you don't know Jesus, don't let any part of this day go by until you make that real. And it's so straightforward. It means first that we have to admit we're sinners, that we're not perfect, that we all make mistakes and only perfection goes to heaven. And so it's just admitting we're a sinner and we don't want to be controlled by that anymore. It's called repentance. And then the next step is just to thank Jesus for going to the cross, for dying for my sins and for raising for the dead so that I can know for sure I'm saved. And so if there's anybody here who does not know Jesus for sure, then just pray a simple prayer in your, in your mind, prayer from the heart, as they say. Dear Jesus, thank you for dying for my sins. I'm certainly not perfect. I'm a sinner. I admit it. But I want to live for you, not for me, and I want to go to heaven. Thank you that you made that possible. You're the way, the truth, and the life. And if we pray that prayer, then God will make himself real to us. But if you're a secret disciple like Joseph of Arimathea, stop being secret. And Father, help all of us to admit our faith and to tell everybody we can because none of us know if we even have another hour. We just don't know. And Father, when we die, there's no second chance. There's no purgatory. There's no idea that somebody can pray us out of this, out of hell or anything like that. Uh, but we're done for all of eternity. It's too terrible to even think about it. So I pray that if there's anybody here that is just sort of not really living the Christian life, that they would do that now. And that we as a group of people, until Jesus comes again or we go, will be asked often about the hope that is within us. And we can joyfully tell people about how wonderful it is to know Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.